If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open to the Gospel of John. We are in John uh, over and over throughout the year, and uh, so we're, we're in John 17 this morning. As Jeff said at the top of the worship this morning, this is called the Farewell Discourse, and um, you know, uh, the time has slowed down. Um, for, for week after week, uh, we have been spending time uh, going through John 1 through 12, uh, which is the ministry of Jesus, uh, of course, and it's, things are going really well. Um, he's healing people, he's feeding people, uh, he's teaching people, he's walking on water. Uh, everything in ministry is going really, really well. And then when we get to this, the farewell discourse, and it just takes place over a few hours. Now, we have spent 10 weeks looking at the farewell discourse, uh, really kind of breaking it down, frankly, because that's what John, the disciple uh, of Jesus, does. And so, um, John 13 and 14, they're sharing this meal. This is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. John 15 and 16, now they're walking along and Jesus is continuing to teach them and explain to them that he's leaving. Um, and then we get to John 17, uh, where Jesus prays a prayer. And things are really tense. They're intense uh, over and over uh, throughout the Gospel of John. We kind of see this, this ministry uh, uh, pro uh, projection that's just up and to the right. Things are more and more disciples, more and more followers. Um, people are more and more hopeful. The disciples are like, the Messiah has come. Uh, everything is good. We're going to come into Jerusalem. We're going to take over. Finally, um, this is going to be really, really good. And Jesus says, guys... I'm leaving. And all of a sudden, the disciples, of course, start freaking out. And so everything is up and to the right. And then all of a sudden, things are about to get really, really bad. And so that's the context of this farewell discourse. Uh, we might even say the world has turned upside down for the disciples. And so if you've come here this morning and your world is upside down, if your world is a little bit sideways, um, you're, I think you're in the right place. And so we are going to look at John 17 and how uh, Jesus is praying uh, in this great time where he is about ready to be arrested, where he is about ready to be tortured and certainly uh, hung on a cross to die. I'm calling this the Lord's Prayer. And you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, this is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in Matthew, in, in Matthew chapter 6. We know the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? And I know that probably says that in many of your Bibles in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. But as a reminder, um, this is the prayer. One day Jesus and his disciples were hanging out and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so what this, I think, Matthew 6 is really the disciples' prayer. Jesus is teaching them, them how to pray God, to, to God. And John 17 is an actual prayer. It's a prayer between Jesus and God. And so um, this is why I call it the Lord's Prayer. It is the longest recorded prayer that Jesus ever prays uh, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Bible. It's 632 words. So it's, it's kind of a long prayer. Um, this is not the longest prayer. Uh, we read in Scripture that sometimes Jesus would pray 
all night long. Aren't you glad that's not in the Bible, right? Because that would just be a lot of information. So we're only going to look at 632 words, um, and we're not even going to cover it all this morning. Uh, John uh, 17 is broken down into three sections of prayer. So first of all, Jesus is going to pray for himself. Then he's going to pray for the disciples. And then he's going to pray for us, uh, for the future uh, church. Um, Jesus prayed a lot over and over throughout Scripture. He prayed at the beginning of his ministry. He prayed throughout his ministry. And he prayed at the end of his ministry. Remember, even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's praying to God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, are doing. And then his last prayer is, into your hands, God, I commit my spirit. I commend my spirit to you. I mean, prayer was a really important part of Jesus' life. And so we're going to look uh, at this prayer this morning. All right, did I give you enough time to get to John 17? Everybody there? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, as we have gathered together today to worship you, uh, that, Lord, we get a peek into this prayer, this conversation between you and your son, Jesus. And, and so, God, as we kind of unpack this prayer a little bit uh, this morning, uh, open our hearts, our minds, and our lives to receive, God, what you want to say uh, to each one of us individually and to us as a congregation. God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there was a guy by the name of Bill, and uh, Bill hadn't been to church in a while, and Bill heard that there was a revival coming to town, so Bill thought, well, I probably should go check it out. So Bill went to the revival on one particular evening, and the preacher preached for a bit, and after he preached, he said, okay, now at the end of my sermon here, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to come forward uh, for prayer, just kind of form a line and uh, just walked down the aisle. And Bill thought to himself, yeah, I need, uh, I need some prayer. And so Bill got in line, he waited his turn, he came down and he came to the preacher and the preacher looked at him and said, hey, how can I pray for you? And he says, you know, would you pray for my hearing? And the pastor says, uh, the preacher says, sure. So he puts, he cups his hands, he puts his hands over Bill's ears and he prays for Bill and he prays for Bill and he prays for Bill and he prays for Bill. And then he opened up and he said, Bill, how is your hearing? And Bill said, I don't know. It's not until Wednesday down at the courthouse. Now, if you're anything like me, sometimes I pray for the wrong things. Sometimes I pray not as I should. Sometimes I don't even know how to pray, honestly. Sometimes I'm a little bit confused about prayer. Anybody else confused about prayer? Have some questions about prayer? Jesus was never confused about prayer. Jesus knew exactly when to pray and how to pray. Which actually, I think, begs the question is, is why did Jesus need to pray? I mean, he's one-third of the Trinity, right? Jesus is God sent from heaven to the earth. Why does Jesus need to pray? I mean, as he walked on earth, he would talk to people and invite people to worship him. Jesus, as he walked on earth, he would actually forgive people's sins. 
So why in the world? He, call, he claimed to be co-equal with God. So why does Jesus need to pray? I'm glad you asked. You probably thought about it. And then I would explain it this way. Jesus, of course, is part of the Trinity and speaks of his co-equal nature with God. But when Jesus came to earth, he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father. He voluntarily said, I'm going to give up my divinity powers, if you will, and become a human being. Jesus, what, 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 he was very unique, very different than us. Scripture tells us that he was fully God, but also fully human being. He wasn't just, you know, God with some kind of partial uh, uh, human flesh on his skin. He was fully human. He limited himself. He submitted himself to God. So when Jesus was in Nazareth in the carpenter shop and he's hammering away at something, it hurt. Like if you hit your thumb with a hammer, Jesus would say, ah! He wouldn't go, ah! right? I mean, he, he wasn't, that was not Jesus. It hurt. He was like you and me. And so as Jeff read this morning, and I got this in my notes this morning too. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in the NIV. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to, uh, to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. He voluntarily subjugated himself to the Father. So um, in John 14, we read this a couple weeks ago. This is what Jesus says. Remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I will come back again. If you really loved me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. As Jesus walked on this earth, he voluntarily gave up his, his power, his privilege, and submitted himself to God. And so as we read through the Gospels over and over and over, this is why Jesus prayed. Because he needed the Father through the trials, the hardships, the struggles that he faced in his life. Jesus prayed over and over and over. And so the application, I think, is really clear for all of us. If Jesus needed to pray constantly and regularly throughout his life, how much do we need to be praying to our Heavenly Father? Oftentimes people will pray only when they get in trouble, only when they need God, when they need Jesus, when they need something for God, from God. But what Jesus did and what we, of course, need is to be praying regularly and constantly. So this is why I kind of wanted to tee up John 17 this morning because I think this is a, a pretty extraordinary prayer that we get into the life of Jesus. And I just want to uh, kind of set this up just a little bit more. The great Scottish reformer, John Knox, this is how he described John 17. He said, if the Bible is the tabernacle if this is the tabernacle or the temple of God, where people meet God, then John 17 is the holy 
of holies. Isn't that great? I love that idea that John 17 is so powerful for us. And John Knox loved John 17 so much that he preached on it very, very regularly in meticulous detail. And at the very end of this great Scottish reformer's life, as he lie on his deathbed, he asked his wife to read John 17 to him over and over and over until he breathed his last. So the last words he heard on this earth were this prayer between Jesus and his heavenly Father. So let's look at John 17, beginning with verse 1, as Jesus is praying for himself. After this, uh, after Jesus said this, meaning he's going away and all that other stuff that we've been talking about, he looked to heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Think about this. It is just hours before Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just hours before he's going to be tortured, where he's going to be put on trial, where he's going to be shamed, where he's going to be flogged, where he's going to be beaten, and he's going to be hung on a cross to die. This is the prayer he prays. Now, what, I mean, what about you? you? You know that, let's just say you know that you've got just a few hours left in this life. And maybe you even know that you're going to be tortured and beaten and sh shamed. How, what would your prayers look like? You've got just a few hours left to live. What are your prayers going to be like? You know what my prayer would be? God, get me out of this. I don't want to do this. Help me, God. Take this away from me. Or God says, no, we still got to do it. You know what my prayer would be? God, like, Take the pain away. Is there going to about ready to beat me and whip me and torture me? Take the pain away. Somehow make all my nerve endings numb. Anybody else pray that prayer? That, that's what I would pray. It's got to take away the pain. Take away the suffering that I am about ready to experience. That's not what Jesus prays. He prays that God would glorify him, that God would give him glory and show him glory. And you're thinking, okay, what does that mean? Glory is this idea of worshipful praise, honor, thanksgiving. Glory is like a halo appearing around the shadow of an object. Glory is a, a distinguished quality or asset. Glory is a state of uh, great gratification, a height of achievement, a great beauty and splendor, a joyful experience in heaven. These are all dictionary definitions of what glory is. So these, this is what Jesus is praying for. I think my favorite definition of glory that wasn't in the dictionary uh, that I read is to, to be famous. 
God, make me famous. Make me exalted so that the world, everybody in the world might know who I am and worship me. This is what Jesus is praying. Restore me, God, as I'm coming back to heaven with you. I'm done with earth. Make me famous. So the question is, did God make Jesus famous? Did God glorify Jesus? Did God answer Jesus' prayer to give him glory? You know, the Bible tells us a little later on in the book of Acts, in Act of, Acts of the Apostles, famous martyr Stephen, he was preaching Jesus. He wouldn't shut up. So the religious authorities took him out and they started throwing rocks at him. They started to stone him. And so his Stephen is being pelted with rocks, with these stones. He prays this prayer. Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. So as Stephen is being martyred, as he is being killed, he sees this vision of heaven open up. And he sees Jesus in a place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus has been glorified. So God answered this prayer that he would be standing right next to God. Jesus' prayer is answered. Father, glorify your son. So then Jesus shifts gears a little bit. After he prays for himself, then he goes and prays for his disciples, those who are with him as they're traveling toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 6. I have revealed to you, uh, revealed you to those who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given uh, me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. All that I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, I am come, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So over and over, it's really interesting, Jesus uses this language of the world. In the New Testament, this, world, uh, this word, the world, shows up uh, 209 times in the New Testament. In this prayer, Jesus talks about the world 12 times. And the Greek word here is cosmos. And we, of course, know this word uh, associated with our English word, uh, cosmology, the study of the universe, the study of the world. As we look at this idea of cosmos throughout the New Testament, it's used in a variety of different ways, really three primary different ways. And so the first way when we think of the cosmos is the way most of us think of the cosmos, as, as the world, as the globe, Right? This is like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the cosmos, the heaven and the earth. God created it all. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the earth. 
The second way uh, that this word is used in the New Testament, uh, cosmos, is as it relates to people. This is when we read in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Jesus is not talking about a globe. He is talking about people. And so when he talks about, for God so loved the world, he's talking about people. So when Jesus talks about the world, sometimes he means the people of the world. And we are to love uh, like Jesus loved the people of the world. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in this prayer. He's not talking about the globe, and he's not talking about the people. He's talking about kind of the third usage of this word, cosmos. And this idea of cosmos is really around an order or way of thinking. We might use language like something that is worldly. And so as Jesus is talking about things, the, the systems of the world, the orders of the world, the worldly things of the world, we might even say uh, the culture of the world or ideas of the world but are not of God. It's the temporary things of the world. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this prayer. is those things, these ideas, these orders, the culture of the world. The text here that I want to kind of lift up is it comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We've talked about this a couple weeks now. Where the God of this world or the ruler of this world, according to Scripture, is the devil himself, the enemy of God, the, 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 the one who is the accuser. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's the systems of this world, the order of this world. So what Jesus is talking about is rescuing, saving the disciples from these ideas, these thoughts, these beliefs, these orders of the world. Let's continue with verse 12. While I was with them, Jesus is still praying, of course, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. Of course, that's Judas Iscariot. So that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. He's still in these systems of the world, the order of the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify, which is a churchy word, which means make them holy. Um, so make them holy or sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world, for I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now there's a lot of words there. It's almost a tongue twister. Be glad you didn't have to read that this morning. So just, to, I want to summarize this for you. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that I have come into the world to rescue people, 
to save people from their sin and I'm going to take them out of the world through my work on the cross. I'm going to clean them up. I'm going to clean them up. I'm going to sanctify them. I'm going to make them holy. I'm going to make them righteous through my work on the cross. And after I've cleaned them up and sanctified them, I've made them holy, then I'm going to place them back in the world to do my work. That's what Jesus is praying for the disciples. I'm going to take their mess. I'm going to clean off their mess. And I'm going to send them back into the world with a message. A message that all people can receive this grace, this forgiveness through my work on the cross. And in the midst of this prayer, Jesus is reminding us about what it means to be taken out of the world, to be cleaned off, to be sanctified, to be made holy, and to come back into the world, that we are different than the world. We are different than the systems of the world. And he tells us in this prayer that as we live in the world as redeemed, as sanctified, as cleansed people, saved people, it's going to be hard. You know, every occupation has an occupational hazard. So if you work like on telephone poles or something like that, your occupational hazard might be uh, getting splinters or falling off of a ladder or getting electrocuted. Every occupation has a hazard to it. And the occupational hazard of being a Jesus follower, as one who has been sanctified, who has been saved and rescued, put back in the world, is the world isn't going to like us. Jesus tells us in this prayer, the world is going to hate us. That's our occupational hazard, folks. And so we need to get used to it. Be okay with it. Just recognize our job in this world is not to be liked by the world. The systems of the world, these ideas, the culture of the world, we are different. We have been made holy. We have been sanctified. Notice Jesus, he doesn't pray, God, take them out of the world. Put them in a cave. Keep them separate He's not praying a prayer of isolationism. That, that, you know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but, but my inclination as I look at the world and, and the troubles of the world, of the brokenness of the world, of the sin of the world, as someone who's been sanctified, made holy and righteous by Jesus, I just want to withdraw from the world. I just want to find a cave, canned goods, beans, I don't know. Stock up on ammunition. Just I just want to be away from the world. Jesus says that this is not what I'm praying for my disciples. I'm actually praying that once they've been cleansed and redeemed and sanctified, that they're going to be put back in the world. He prays for an engagement in the world to go to battle. This is why our mission statement here uh, at Faith Lutheran is we are about growing disciples who grow disciples. This first part of growing disciples, that's about our sanctification. 
It's about being made right. It's about being made holy. And this is why we spend so much time and effort and focus on God's word because it can only happen through knowing and reading and studying of God's word and just allowing God's word to wash over us, to cleanse us, to make us more and more righteous. This idea of sanctification and this idea of gathering together. This idea that we need to be together. And I, I feel like I talk about this all the time. There's so many times Christians think, well, I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to hang out with Jesus. Awesome, me too. But what it means to be a Jesus follower is we need to gather together. We gather together in worship like we're doing this morning. And we gather together in small groups and life groups so that we can share with what's going on in our lives, our hurts, our struggles, our pains. This is what it means to be a disciple. This first word of growing disciples is God just sanctify me, make me more and more holy until I finally arrive in my heavenly home where I will finally be made completely and fully holy with you. And it's not just about growing as disciples and, and being sanctified ourselves through God's word and through, through the community of the church. But it's about also about the second word, growing other disciples. That's the part I frankly struggle with. I like hanging out with you guys. I like studying God's word. But God has called us. Jesus in this prayer says, I have made you, created you. You need to be engaged in the world. You need to spend time around other people who do not know Jesus. How are those worldlings going to know about Jesus if you and I don't tell them about Jesus? So this is a prayer of absolute engagement with the world. And so in summary, I'll just say this. The world needs you. As Jesus followers, as disciples, the world needs you. And you need the world. You need to be in the world. You know, years ago um, in the Pacific Northwest, um, codfish kind of became a thing. People were like, ooh, this is good fish. So they started catching lots and lots of codfish, and word got out across the United States that codfish was really, really good. And so what they decided to do, of course, um, is export this codfish all over the United States. So what they would do, of course, is catch this codfish, freeze it, and then send it to restaurants across the United States. But what they discovered is that codfish is kind of a delicate fish. It's the kind of fish that when you freeze it, it loses its flavor. It's not as good as fresh codfish. Just, you know, get the fish, put it in the pan, that's good codfish. And so the freeze, the whole freezer thing wasn't working very well. So somebody just said, hey, I know. Let's catch these codfish, put them in salt water, in, sea, in ocean water, and then we'll ship them uh, through uh, all over the United States to, to when they arrive at their place. And then we'll kill them and put them in the frying pan, and that'll be really good. Well, what they discovered is that as those fish were traveling across the United States, they would sit in the salt water, pretty inactive. They would kill them, put them in the pan, and the codfish was mushy. Texture was just blah. So they came up with another plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to catch the fish, 
put them in salt water, and in that salt water, in that bin, in that tub, we're going to put in their natural enemy, the catfish. And so here's these codfish in these bins being transported all over the United States to these different restaurants, running away from the catfish, scurrying away. They would arrive at the restaurant, cook them up. That's a good codfish. Here's my point. If you are in the world, but not in the word, you will become like the world. And if you're in the word, and you're not in the world, you're going to become mushy. You need to be chased around a little bit. You need a little bit of resistance in your life. You need to be around other people who don't think like you. Catfish. People who don't love Jesus like we love Jesus. People who don't read God's word like we read God's word. So next time you're complaining about your boss who's a catfish, maybe God gave you that catfish, that boss to make you a better Jesus follower. Maybe God gave you that boss, that catfish, to help you so that you could share God's word with them. See, sometimes being a Jesus follower, we think to ourselves, I wish I could just be around Jesus people all day long. I want to live in a Jesus neighborhood where all of my neighbors are Jesus followers, where everybody in the city, you know, uh, everybody in the city loves Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's heaven, right? That does not exist on this earth. We're going to get to that place where all of our neighbors are Jesus followers. Our whole city, the New Jerusalem, is all going to worship Jesus. It's going to be awesome. But that's not here. That's not right now. As we walk on this earth, we are called to engage with the catfish of this world. That's who God has called us to be. This is who Jesus, how Jesus is praying for us. So if you came to worship this morning and you feel like you're being chased, if you feel like you're being run ragged by the world, Jesus is praying for you. And I love what he prays for you in John 17, 15. My prayer is that you would not take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Jesus is praying for protection as we face the catfish in our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for this prayer. We thank you, God, for the ways in which Jesus prayed over and over throughout his life to you, this connection he had with you. And God, even up to the very last moments of his life, there he was praying to you and with you. God, may we be those kinds of people, people who pray in all times and all places, being reminded, God, that you have taken us out of the world. You have sanctified us. You have made us holy. You have washed us off. You have cleansed us by the work of Jesus on the cross. But our work is not done. 
God, you have called us and placed us back into the world, into systems and people who do not love you, who do not like you, who do not like us. And so, God, we pray that you would use us. Use us, Lord, as you've used the disciples in the midst of hardship and challenge, even in the midst of our scurrying around as followers of Jesus, to be light and salt, as Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Until you call us home, Lord, until we arrive with you, where we'll be fully made whole and restored in your presence. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.